Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body-inclusive non-diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of The Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body-inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Okay, so this one's a little bit different because the tables are turned on me. I invited my friend and our colleague, Christy Harrison, on to interview me about my new book, Vitamin A to Z, Your BS-Free Guide to Wellbeing. So in this conversation, we share how the book actually came to fruition and my intentions and hopes for the book and We'd also talk about things like stages of change, which is a trans-theoretical model. And then we talked uh, more about specific chapters like vitamin M for mindfulness, vitamin H for health redefined, and vitamin V for values. So we dive into some of the individual vitamins as well as talking about the writing process. And there are plenty and plenty of laughs along the way. Um, Christy is so generous and so warm. And I'm so grateful to you, Christy, for giving up your your time and resources to um, have some fun with me and to press record on this uh, conversation. Super grateful. Thank you so, so much. All right. So for those of you who don't know Christy, I want to tell you a little bit about her. So Christy is an anti-diet registered dietitian nutritionist, certified intuitive eating counselor, and most well-known specifically over the past few years as author of the book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Wellbeing, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. Christy offers online courses and private intuitive eating coaching to help people all over the world make peace with food and their bodies. Since 2013, Christy has hosted the very famous food site. She didn't write that. I added that little bit, a weekly podcast exploring people's relationships with food and paths to body liberation. It's now, unsurprisingly, one of Apple's top 100 health podcasts, reaching tens of thousands of listeners worldwide each week. So if you haven't read Anti-Diet, I would personally highly, highly recommend it. It is not only clever and intelligent, it also steps through so cleverly how diet culture really steals from us, um, all of us, and most notably those in marginalized bodies and how we can elevate voices and uh, contribute towards body liberation for everybody. So highly recommend not only Anti-Diet, but then also Food Site Podcast. Again, I just wanted to say a huge thanks to Christy for, um, for your time and energy, for coming on and having this conversation with me. It was super fun. There are lots of laughs, so you'll have to forgive us. We are very familiar with one another. And if you're interested in more uh, back catalogue episodes of The Mindful Dietitian or any uh, online courses or trainings, um, upcoming events, or you would like to join us in our closed Facebook group, you can do so at www.themindfuldietitian.com.au. It would be fantastic to have you as part of our community as we grow and learn together in the service of body liberation for all people. Thank you so much. Hope you really enjoy this episode with Christy Harrison and I. Hello and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. 
So today we're doing something a little bit different and I'm going to be joined by my friend, my colleague, an anti-diet advocate and activist, uh, extraordinaire Christy Harrison, who you will probably remember from episode 65 and also episode three, I believe. So an early episode and then a more recent one from 2020. So Christy is here joining me and we are going to do a turn the tables specifically to have a conversation about my new book, Vitamin A to Z, your BS free guide to well-being. So a huge welcome to you, Christy, and thank you so, so much for being so generous and joining me. Ah, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be back. And I have to say, I loved your book. It was such a, such a pleasure to read. It was like hanging out with you, like just a mix of compassion and kindness and fun and hilarity and all of the things. So I'm really excited to talk with you about it. Oh, I appreciate that so much. And, you know, Many of you listening will be familiar with Christie's book, Anti-Diet, which episode 65, we really dive down into, you know, the process of writing that and developing that. So I'm sure we will be referring back to that content and, and your future projects too, which I'll be really <laughs> excited to talk about. So what I'm going to do now, if it's okay with you, Christy, is I'm just going to hand over to you, which feels a little bit, well, yes. it feels so, so different. I mean, I'm recording, I have done the introduction, and now I'm like, okay, take it away, Christy. <laughs> so go for it. <laughs> Handing over the keys. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you for, uh, for trusting me to do this, and I'm so excited. So, you know, the first question I have for you, I think, is kind of setting the stage and just telling people a little bit about, you know, the concept behind the book. I was really struck by the fact that, you know, vitamins are usually presented either as like this wellness diet thing, like this superfood is jam packed with vitamins or, you know, it's very clinical. It's like, take this vitamin to support bone health or, you know, this mineral will reverse your anemia or whatever it is. Right. And so this take of, you know, take of yours on vitamins is really unique and really interesting. And I would just love to know like how you came up with the concept for this book, this title, this way of organizing the, the ideas. Yeah, thank you so much for asking that question. So it has an interesting evolution, actually. So a number of years ago now, maybe four or even maybe five years ago, I did a series called Vitamin A to Z on Facebook um, and chose different words which ma matched the letters A to Z. And some of the words are very different to what's in the book now. But the response from the anti-diet uh, and health at every size community, my colleagues and more broad, the more broad community was really overwhelmingly positive. People found it a really interesting, lighthearted way to take a look at different, um, different um, skills and different qualities that we can develop to um to uh, be able to develop whether it's resilience or develop an understanding or develop compassion or awareness around our positionality in the world and what diet culture has to do with that and our socializations and so forth so originally it was like a Facebook A to Z type of thing and I noticed that people were really interested and it would got it really built a beautiful community and then what I did was I actually made it into a pack of cards so as you as you know Christy I've got um 
the mindful eating cards. I've got the body healing cards, which I co-developed with Marcy Evans. Um, and I've got some uh, values cards as well, specifically to talk about, you know, food and eating oriented values. And then I had the vitamin A to Z cards and they always sold really quite well and people seem to really like them because it not only was about food eating and bodies or our relationship to 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 and with food eating and bodies but also kind of took us in a few different directions in terms of um you know really questioning um our socializations and and questioning how it was that we have come to believe these particular things about you know food and eating and our bodies um and with a, with a fair dose of sass, I guess, which is my usual way of speaking and my usual way of writing too, because, you know, there is something really, I think, really important um, alongside compassion, and that is like a fierce compassion, a sense of stability and um, a sense of real solidness in the care that we take for ourselves. So the evolution from there was well it kind of paused there and then it became the cards and I've circled around A to Z for quite a number of years now so then when I was approached to write a book or this is called a mini because um, it's small in size and small in kind of thickness and but hopefully not short on depth that was that was my main aim is not not too short on on depth short in length not in depth um and you definitely succeed in that I think Oh, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's it, it's not easy actually because I was given a word limit of eighteen thousand words, and I was so scared that I wouldn't make it that I ended up at twenty three thousand. Actually, <laughs> had a similar experience with my book. It's, yeah, oh, I, it seems like such such a lot of words when they tell you a, a word limit, and so then right. it's hard not to just overshoot it. Right, exactly. And I'm not somebody who, for example, has done a thesis or a PhD or anything like that. So I really had, I had a loose concept of what this looked like in terms of the number of, uh, you know, pieces of paper or something. But um, really, I would just get writing and writing and writing. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> Whoops, that's way too much. See ya. Bye, editor. Hello, editor alert. <laughs> and then she ended up doing this magic with it, which brought it back down into some semblance of you know, boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Editors are great. They're, you know, we all need an editor. Even editors Oh yes, need editors, definitely. So. And the way that yeah. an editor provides boundaries is particularly spectacular. <laughs> yes. Yes. Boundaries. And oh, that's such an important topic as well that we can discuss, but I'm curious, first of all, you know, speaking of boundaries, actually, like, especially for the other dietitians in the audience who might be thinking about writing books of their own. Mm. I'm curious to know how you made time to write this book with everything else you have going on, you know, your work as a dietitian, private practice, and also having a family and, you know, just how you juggled all the things. Okay. So <laughs> I had a, a, a funny slash not funny <laughs> conversation with, um, one of the other parents at school only uh, a couple of months ago now. And, and she said, congratulations on the book. You know, it, I really look forward to, you know, buying a copy. This was before it came out. And, um, and she said, oh, you know, it probably was like the best timing ever to, you know, write a book during COVID because the kids were home from school in Melbourne where I live for about six months. It was a, a long, <laughs> it was a long time. 
And I said to her, not somebody I know particularly well, but lovely and so well-intentioned. And I said to her, you know, I'll have to be honest with you. It was not. It was like the opposite of the best time because I was juggling like so many things um and also you know being an eating disorder specialist also you know focusing really on holding space for my clients and my supervisees and people who were really trusting me to hold a steady space so to be writing a book in that time I won't lie to you Christy and everybody else listening that it was tough it, it really was tough and had I known how tough it was going to be I probably would have said no um, I actually did say no at first because I didn't see myself really as an author or, or a writer but then when I I thought to myself oh my gosh I've got so much content for A to Z why don't I just do A to Z like I know I really know this content you know um, and so to loop back to your question the, the, the juggle was real. It really was real. I found myself getting up early in the morning um, before I was supporting my kids with their schooling. And then before I was working, you know, doing my own work, I would stay up at night um, to do it. And so I had to set aside uh, deliberately some, some specific time where I was able to, um, where I was able to really focus and get ideas down in a, in a coherent way and I hadn't done this really in this way before because um, I don't it hasn't necessarily been available to me for many years that I've been able to get any more than say an hour uh, you know to myself at a time and now I really had to carve out two, three hour blocks at a time. And so if I had an hour, I was able to, um, for example, respond to some emails and do a social media post. And for me, what that happened, what happened with that was it kept me on top of things and kept things going. But an hour when you're writing a book didn't allow me to draw the ideas together in a way that really allowed me to take those further steps and so I had to really deliberately carve out chunks of time where I actually had to close the door I had to put a sign on the door saying effectively do not disturb but in a nice way like love you but go away um <laughs> and there was a lot of pressure on on my partner as well you know to really rally the troops and have them organized so that I could really dedicate myself to this so yeah I want to be really transparent with people that this was not an easy process it was not made easier by COVID I didn't have quote-unquote spare time the, the spare time that I did have was dedicated to you know developing the content for this book and, and every step of the way Christy and I'm sure well actually I'm not sure but you may relate to this it's I just so desperately didn't want it to be a piece of shit you know I really didn't want it to be terrible I wanted it to be decent at the absolute least I did not want it to be harmful I did not want it to be privileged and healthiest and be put in that same um, kind of you know pit with m most other kind of quote-unquote wellness kind of books I really wanted it to sit alongside books like intuitive eating and anti-diet and and other books that people regard so so highly and for it to be in the useful pile as opposed to well there was a bit there that was okay but you know didn't really get anything new from it so I was pretty keen to you know for all that effort to be 
uh, you know, for it to come to fruition in a way that, that was, um, that was, that felt in my integrity. Yeah. Mm. I completely identify with that. I think, yeah, the desire to have a book that's enduring, that is helpful and useful and not harmful is so real for me too. And also I so identify with what you said about like the time, just the, I'm, I'm struck right now too, because I'm writing my next book at how like time just takes on a different energy or a different uh, dimension when it comes to writing a book. Like I could spend, you know, eight hours just researching and writing about one topic and then just not know where the time has gone at the end of the day, you know, because it's just, it's so all encompassing. And that's part of the reason I put my podcast on hiatus recently or announced that I'm putting it on hiatus, depending on when this comes out, it might be already on hiatus, but um, you know, it, I just, I don't have the bandwidth to be kind of jumping around to different things. And I really wanted to like fully dive into writing this book. Mm. So I very much, identify with that feeling of like needing that extra time and also admire you so much for being able to juggle all of that with having kids at home and basically having to take on like another job as a homeschool teacher you know mm-hmm. more or less or at least homeschool kind of manager semi-supervisor semi <laughs> semi to... right. make sure you keep a coffee in your hand at all times <laughs> Yeah, it's, it, it sounds exhausting. And yeah, COVID has not really been a a break for many, many people. Yeah, no, I think I just want to be transparent about that because I know there are lots of people out there who have got like a, a book in them, so to speak. Um, and I was not one of those people who thought I had a book in me. I wasn't super interested, to be honest. Um, I'm very glad I did it, like very glad. Um, and it is definitely a different way that I can... Um, communicate with people that I normally wouldn't be communicating with um and yeah but the actually is a huge privilege to be able to have had that time I'm very lucky that we were in a financial position that we're in a you know we have great neighbors for example you know even in the 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 highest of the lockdown kind of situations we were still able to get fresh air and uh you know um, get outside and um you know, to be, to be connecting with other people that way. And so that really, you know, kept me going. So it was a really interesting time to write a book. I tell you, it was really interesting. It is. And it, it probably puts so much of your self-care skills to the test, right? Oh, the, yeah. Gotcha. Like a lot of the values that you talk about in the book, I'm sure you had to live in order to be able to create the space to write the book. Oh my God. Yes. It's so true. And did so, did so very imperfectly too. So, you know, some days, um, you know, as you know, Christy, and most of the listeners will know I'm a yoga teacher as well, and I'm very dedicated to a mindfulness practice. And I've got to say that, you know, that that was one of the things that I regard so highly in my, in my kind of suite of self-care practices. And if I was able to get down on the floor and take some breaths and do a short sequence, like literally five minutes, then... I was like high-fiving myself all over the place because uh, that is what that looked like on some days. So I don't want to present any kind of illusion that, um, you know, I had things all sorted because there were some days and moments and probably weeks and months actually where I really didn't. I really didn't. I was, you know, kind of scattered all over the place and just trying to hold things together. And I'm sure you relate to that and I'm sure other people really relate to that. Um, So, yeah, I mean, something I know you and I, share in common Christy is just being just bringing 
authenticity and transparency to our um, to our experiences and so we're not leading to people to believe one thing when actually the other is true so so for anybody who's writing a book yes losing your shit will be part of the process <laughs> <laughs> absolutely it's yeah sort of a rite of passage I feel like I think this, so with this process well, so I had thought to, t- to touch on the mindfulness uh, concept a little bit later because it's the M of the A to Z. So it comes kind of in the middle. But since we're on the topic of mindfulness, I would love to you know, talk a little bit about why that's such a, a, an important guiding light for you and your work and you know, specifically why the mindfulness that you talk about in the book and espouse in all of your work is so different than the quote unquote mindful eating that gets sold in diet culture. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the um, mindful eating for weight loss type of thing or the uh, yeah, the, the, the mindfulness so you could control your thoughts and feelings mm-hmm. and, and behaviors. So, you know, I have been a, a proponent and a practitioner of mindfulness based activity and movement for a number of years now and to the point where I can't um, disentangle that from nor would I wish to from you know my my everyday life so m is mindfulness and a is awareness and in some ways they have a lot of intersecting qualities but it is mindfulness is broader than awareness because it invites us into a particular quality of awareness um, by, you know, um, being in the present moment, engaging with our senses and really finding some steadiness and some ease in our moment-to-moment experiences without fixing or controlling or um, do, the doing too that is just so prevalent and prominent, not only within diet culture, but just also broader culture as well. And also embedded in some yoga practices and, mind, and mindfulness practices themselves. So um, what I was aiming to really do with this chapter is to strongly set the scene that uh, the, the spirit of present moment awareness, in other words, you know, mindfulness can be woven throughout um, lots of the other qualities that we're aiming to uh, build. So, for example, um, vitamin B is brave or bravery. I wasn't too sure whether to call it brave or bravery, but anyway, and how being um, uh mindful and kind and present to our experiences really give us valuable information and sometimes that it can be really brave and courageous to be speaking up and sometimes it can be brave and courageous to actually sit back and really take our time so the discerning quality of mindfulness is really prominent throughout the book so that we're able to build a sense of discernment over uh, our responses to our present moment experiences rather than coming from a reactive place, which is very, very grounded, of course, in our autonomic nervous system where, you know, we tend to, uh, we tend to react in particular ways based on our life experiences, this kind of cascade effect of uh, responsiveness or reactivity that is, that is so, is so grounded in um, our unconscious um, 
yeah, our, our life experience, our history and our unconscious. So without getting too kind of um, down into the, into the depths of it, you know, I was, what I was hoping to do is just weave and loop. I love a looping kind of story or a, um, a looping way of talking about concepts. And I'll just tell you a little bit what, about what I mean by that is that when we cover one topic or uh, we're talking about one particular concept, it, I find it personally so helpful. And I've had the feedback that other people find this helpful is that we keep looping, looping, looping back to the to particular concepts right throughout a text or throughout a podcast or throughout, a, you know, a, a course or a series or something. So you're building on some of the foundations and then, and then, um, and then, um, yeah, I guess building is the best way to put it and looping back to some of the foundations, because I think that's where, you know, when we're losing some of those foundations of, of mindfulness, which encompasses awareness and curiosity, that um, that's when we can find ourselves falling into all kinds of um, unconscious reactive kind of responses that we would really prefer not to be not to be doing or, or is not taking our lives in the meaningful direction. That's really interesting and and you know as you're talking about the looping I've realizing how helpful I find that myself in learning and in and you know something I really appreciated about your book too is that these themes sort of came up again and again in different ways and you know different vitamins or chapters kind of had a different uh, approach to maybe a similar topic or wove in something that was from earlier but in a new way and it, mm. it's just I think really powerful to to keep building like that and you know, I think especially like for me as someone with PTSD, where I do notice that sometimes I get reactive when I'm first learning about something or, you know, there's like some defensiveness maybe coming up and, you know, I think back to my own recovery from disordered eating and how like guarded and defensive I was against the ideas of health at every size, for example, um, the, the sort of need to loop back and continue revisiting with like greater and greater awareness, but also greater and greater resourcing around like how to calm my nervous system or how to, um, you know, sit with the discomfort that might come up when experiencing new ideas. And so I'm wondering if that was sort of part of your thought process here too, is like giving people the space and the tools as well through some of these practices that you have in the book to kind of calm and center themselves so that they could be sort of more present or um, able to take in some ideas that might be, might've been challenging at the first, you know, the first iteration. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're spot on there because, uh, you know, as, as you know, Christy, you know, most of my quote unquote audience right now are my colleagues, they're, they're other health professionals. So writing for, um, for my colleagues as well, as well as, you know, general community members meant that I really had to have a particular style of messaging in mind. And what I was thinking about for this book is to keep it, not to necessarily to keep it simple, but to really make it grounded in some of the core concepts which are really integral to being able to live in diet culture or live alongside diet culture with its ongoing challenges. So rather than being like a ticker box as in, oh, awareness, got it, curiosity, got it, um, joy, 
done, you know, rather than kind of having it a like, oh, yes, I can do that. More, I really wanted it to be strongly grounded in the um, in the qualities that we're going to need if, if we're going to be um, not only surviving, but, but really living and living lives that feel really meaningful for us. Uh, whatever that means to us individually as well as collectively and, um, you know, in, in the broader culture. So, uh, yeah, rather than making it go in 20 different directions, I was, I, I'm really hoping that this just gives people a solid grounding so that they can then go and, for example, feel way more equipped to head into, for example, anti-diet, you know, or books that are, that, that really do have a lot more depth to them. You know, I mean, not only is it, probably triple or quadruple the size of it but it has a, a slightly different narrative and it also um, goes much more deeper and broader so in some ways I'm kind of hoping this is a primer for people and I mean to, to kind of draw the parallel um, amongst this and um, eating disorder recovery what I do notice is that people are very very keen to like get to the good stuff you know, quote unquote, um, and for example, intuitive eating. You know, and in, and I'm a big proponent of intuitive eating as part of eating disorder recovery, and that we can, you know, from the very very start, we can build in self compassion, and we can build in awareness, and we can build in, you know, an awareness of diet police and and so forth. Um, uh, but that, yeah, I'm just really hoping this gives people a really good grounding, so that when they do. Uh, or, or if they choose to, um, you know, head into some different texts, um, especially maybe written by some more diverse writers with some maybe more challenging concepts that people feel really equipped to like, okay, this is not the first time I've heard that phrase or that word. I feel like I get that and I've done some practices and now I'm ready for the so-called like next step, you know. So they're not surprised when they read uh, for example, something by Virgie Tova, an author who I adore, or someone like um, Sonia Renee Taylor, another author who I absolutely adore. They're like, okay, I'm ready. Like I'm ready really to, to get into the, the real, um, you know, to get right into the depths of this, these particular concepts. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, given that this is an audience of mostly dietitians and, you know, certainly there are some non-dietitians listening as well, but, you know, I want to think about this maybe from a uh, stages of change approach, right? Because that's kind of what we've been talking about here is the stages of change. And I see that sort of woven into your book as well, even though you don't name it explicitly. I think there's a lot of kind of touching on um, the, the concepts from stages of change. And so, you know, I'm curious, and I, I know too, that you incorporate that in a lot of your work as well. And in the communication um, workshop that we did together, we had a whole uh, topic on it, right? So, you know, I'm just curious to, to sort of hear from you, like what the stages of change, you know, how that, how the stages of change informed your writing of this book. And maybe we can start by talking about what the stages of change are for anyone who isn't familiar with that term. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic idea. So the stages of change is a, a trans theoretical model which was developed by two uh, psychologists, I believe, or two therapists um, in the 1970s called um, Prochaska and Di Clemente, and they originally developed the stages of change as more a model uh, uh, focusing around substance use. Um, and uh, it was a way to understand the process of behaviour change. 
um, and then to inform other modalities. So, for example, motivational interviewing, uh, in particular motivational interviewing, um, but, but also other modalities, CBT, um, ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy, I'm sure DBT, and I'm sure there all different kinds of modalities would in some ways be thoughtful about this model uh, that was that was developed it's like a long, long time ago now. So the stages of change, uh, a lot of people listening will be familiar with it. I'm just going to name each stage. And it, rather than it being linear, it's often represented as almost like a loop, a looping or spiralling kind of uh, representation, which starts with pre-contemplation. In our previous language, we used to call this denial, uh, which we do not do anymore at all because that is extremely pathologizing and really harmful. But pre-contemplation. So not ready, not ready for change, um, not, not, not interested, not interested in change. And then there is contemplation. So there is a little bit of interest in change. And this uh, contemplation is really marked by what we might call ambivalence. And um, I, don't, I don't want to pathologise ambivalence. It is an actual stage of change and it is a, a very important place, actually. Um, I think it is anyway. Um, it can be very frustrating for, for people and for practitioners. I understand that. But it is actually a very powerful place, contemplation. And then there is preparation when we're uh, when we've got uh, kind of we feel like we've got enough information and some experience on board to begin to put some changes in place, but but not maybe to the degree which we would most prefer or which is going to lead to longer lasting change. So that's preparation. And then there is um, the action stage where we're, we're actively engaged in uh, behavioural change, which is leading us in the direction of uh, what feels meaningful and important to us individually. And um, and then there is maintenance, which is that it becomes more, I guess, easeful for these behaviour changes to be uh, continued over a period of time. And then there is a, 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 another stage there, which which I, I again, I want to be really thoughtful about not pathologising this particular stage, which is in some texts, it's known as relapse. I don't, I, I don't particularly like that that word. But um, I'm not the captain of language, and I certainly would not be. Um, I certainly would not be telling anybody else how to name their own experience. So, whatever you want to name the experience of, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe shifting or or slipping back into behaviours which are antithetical to a, a full and meaningful life, or however we frame this for ourselves. So to your question, um, what I really wanted to speak to here are people really in the contemplation and preparation stages. Because what we know about these particular stages is equipping people with some more insight, some more knowledge, yes, knowledge and education, but mostly insight and that we're able to recognise ourselves in others. Um, sometimes this, this is in storytelling, sometimes it's in reading other people's narratives or hearing other people's experiences, um, but we as humans, this sense of belonging and connectedness is so strong in us that when we have uh, cut ourselves off um, and isolated ourselves and feel like I'm the only one who does this to myself, I'm the only one who feels this way, that is um, one of the most hurtful um, kind of stages that we can 
being as humans. And so to see our experiences written on a page being relayed and being seen and witnessed and heard um, is very powerful. So I suppose what I was thinking about in the book with regards to stages of change is that you know, if you needed a bit more information about what, for example, gratitude could look like, and that it doesn't have to look glittery. And also, you don't have to be able to access gratitude every moment of every day. It is okay. So um, yeah, a mindfulness. Oof, there are tons of times when I'm super reactive and very <laughs> not mindful at all. Um, so what I really wanted to do was give a realistic kind of um, view of a lot of the the concepts and qualities that have been a little bit like glitterized you know um like gratitude like curiosity like mindfulness like self self-compassion and to offer that space to people where it's like and there will be moments where you do not feel compassionate towards yourself at all and please know that you are human you are deserving of kindness and care, even if you are not able to access it in that moment. So that was my kind of intention in the book is to say, this is not a ticker box and it's not a perfectionistic type of uh, pursuit. You know, these ideas are not perfectionistic pursuits, but rather, you know, I, I, I hope that you recognize some of these things as you might, you might find them helpful, you might not find them helpful, and, and that's okay, you know. Um, really off offering it up as a um, as as steps you might take if you felt willing and when you feel willing. So I'm sure that a lot of people will use this as a pick up put down book. They'll pick it up when they're feeling like mm, I'd like to you know read or connect or um, understand a little bit more about a particular concept or idea and then they'll put it down and then pick it up again and put it down. I mean I use anti diet that way to be honest. I I got it all bookmarked and there are some places I go back and review um you know for example the intersection of um of um, anti-diet and anti-racism for example you know things like that so it's um you know so helpful in that way as well mm, thank you that's really nice to hear and I I love that you know it kind of ties back into that looping idea that you were talking about right that we you know, I think maybe a lot of us sort of learn that way where we pick something up and put it down and reflect and, you know, work on it in our minds and then pick it up again and revisit it from a different perspective. And yeah, I feel like your book is, is very much that too, that people are going to be able to, you know, get some good takeaways and some things to practice and think about and reflect on, and then, you know, go off and maybe do that in the world and then come back. And it's sort of, deceptively short like it's actually it's actually very deep and profound and there's a lot there like you could spend you know months on just one uh one vitamin one chapter you know one principle and you know and yet you could also kind of read through it quickly and like take the whole thing as you know food for thought too so there's lots of different ways to interact with it I think mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I am hoping that that's how it feels to people is you are free to use this in whatever way feels okay to you and just know that it's all okay. You know, ju just mm -hmm. know that you are loved and you are cared for, you are worthy, you are valuable. And if there's something here that helps, then that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And it's so contrary to what 
diet culture and wellness culture put out there, right? Like I was really struck in, in reading the gratitude chapter, but also like mindfulness and self-compassion and all those other ones you mentioned around how different this book is in terms of its like quote unquote instruction, I guess, in, in that way, like, especially with gratitude, because I see in grad, you know, in, in wellness culture and, you know, diet cultures, new guys as the wellness diet, there's this, uh, maybe subset of it. That's like manifesting culture, right? That's like, if you, if your life is not going the way you want it to, or if you're experiencing hardship, it's because you don't believe in yourself hard enough. It's because you don't have enough gratitude. It's because you're not, you know, you're doing things wrong. You're thinking wrong, right? It's wrong. Think that got you there, which is just such a load of crap. Like just not at all, you know, rooted in the real world and sort of understanding of oppression and trauma and things like that. It's just, it's just completely missing the boat on those things. And I feel like your way of explaining gratitude is sort of like a potential resource that you could use if you so choose is completely antithetical to that sort of manifesting culture conceptualization of it. You're absolutely right. I think it's, um, I think what has happened is that particularly around uh, self-compassion, gratitude, mindfulness, those type of topics is that it's almost become entangled in diet culture to the point where it becomes another thing to not be doing well enough and becomes another thing to to, to make us feel not good enough. Like I'm not grateful enough. I'm not mindful enough. I'm not compassionate enough towards myself the way I am. And it just becomes another um, stick to beat ourselves with. So, and I see this, honestly, I see it in my clients. I recognize it in myself. I see it in other people constantly. And I just think it's one of the, one of the subtleties of diet culture that we're just coming to recognize now is that the well-intentioned teachings, because the the core teachings of this, so for example, if you read, um, you know, the self-compassion teachings of, for example, um, Kristen Neff, uh, you know, most of her stuff is is amazing, or um, Christopher Germer, or I mean, there's so many amazing self-compassion teachers, or even trauma-informed teachers, um, you know, that that the the core of what they are teaching is so beautiful and true and um, really loyal to the the intentions of, of these particular concepts. And yet, as usual, we, and by we, I mean the royal we, as in the diet culture we, that uh, we, we find a way to twist these concepts into yet another way to control, you know, self-compassion to control, uh, mindfulness to control. And interestingly, control is the hardest thing to let go of because it feels like sometimes maybe it's the only thing that's holding our life together. So it's, uh, and, it, and, it, and of course, you know, most people would recognise it's a big old illusion, you know, that, um, that if we sit down and, and be quiet long enough, we realise very little is in our control, which is, oof, I don't know about you, Christy, I find that a really scary concept. <laughs> It's terrifying. Um, it's really terrifying. A recovering uh, control freak. Yeah. It's yes. Like, oh my God. Yes. Uh, yeah. So um, this is yeah. 
this is reminding me, you know, of your discussion of health and health as a chapter, I think is really powerful because, you know, you talk about the misconceptions around health and healthism and how that has really played out in diet culture and wellness culture and why this book is such a different kind of redefinition of health, you know, and what, what your definition of health really is. So I'd love to like talk a little bit about that. Cause I think that ties in nicely with this idea of control, right? This idea that we can control our health if we just do the right things, if we just have like the magic key to, you know, punch in the numbers so that we live forever without ever getting sick or having any sort of chronic condition or whatever it might be, you know, how, how do you see health as sort of opposed to that? Yeah. So what I really loved about your interview with Dr. Lindo Bacon is the way that they really address this in their book, Radical Belonging. And I hadn't read Radical Belonging before I wrote this book, um, which is probably a good thing, really, um, because, well, yes, I, I suppose it was a good thing because I was able to kind of have a little bit of in- independent ideas around this. But um, for anybody that's kind of um, interested in in Dr. Bacon's uh, newest book, highly, highly recommend, and then also recommend you go listen on listen on Food Psych. Um, so what Lindo speaks about so beautifully is the idea that um, our quote-unquote health is has been this narrative around food eating exercise, really, and that when we are able to broaden and deepen our definitions of quote unquote health that um that we might come up with actually something really different and i use the quote it's one of my favorite quotes actually is um uh there's nothing healthy about eating your greens if you're going to stress over pizza and what that really is one of my favorite quotes and i love it so much (laughs) thank you (laughs) thanks because i think what that speaks to is the idea that um, you know, we have narrowed our definition of health so much. And, and as dietitians, we are meeting clients and patients and people who are seeking our support that have very specific ideas about health for themselves and have absolutely been, um, you know, entrenched in the idea from, from diet culture as well as our medical system and our health system and all through dietetics as well. You know, it's focused on health, but it's very narrow, very narrow. And also we're kind of led to believe that if we, like you say, if we just do enough, then we are able to achieve health, whatever that means. Now, the thing that I find really interesting, and I'm going to say frustrating about this particular narrative, is the idea that it excludes people for whom, um, uh, you know, healthiness or improved health or whatever, it's just not even accessible. Not even accessible. People with chronic conditions, um, people who self-identify as disabled or have a disability, depending on how they identify, um, people with all kinds of different ways that they show up in the world for whom the pursuit of health is actually going to harm them much, much more than um, uh, than being able to uh, compassionately and kindly, uh, I guess, index what's possible and to seek support based on what's possible, what's accessible, what's realistic, um, what is what can be afforded, and so forth. So, um, yeah, this this is 
health is just a really interesting one. And I think it's it's one that we're going to, I mean, I hope in my lifetime we get our head around a redefinition of this. Um, I have seen a shift, but we've got such a long way to go, especially in the, you know, the so-called health professions. You know, it's, um, I won't lie and pretend that I, I don't feel, you know, under pressure to be helping people be more healthy, whatever that means. But, but I think the issue, for example, in dietetics is that it's not up to me. And it's not up to me to define what that looks like or sounds like or is like for somebody else. And we are not really taught to let go of our own agendas in order to let somebody take the lead and be that support point, be that co-driver. Co Don't take the steering wheel. Let the other person take the steering wheel. You know, that's a um, really important part of, of what we call trauma-informed care is letting the person really take charge of their own uh, well-being, whatever that means, to them and uh, being a support person and, and understanding that um, everybody's health is very contextual, contextual um, on their lived experience. Yeah, and I think I love that word well-being as opposed to wellness. It's actually something I've been playing around with myself as I'm writing this book, this next book called Redefining Wellness, or that's the working title anyway. And what I really am feeling is that, you know, having wellness be defined as this narrow set of physical health related practices. And even, you know, when it's sort of like quote unquote spiritual or quote unquote mental health, it's actually still coming back down to this very like physical sort of, um, materialistic approach, not really looking at the deeper needs and meanings and the social determinants of health that we know have such a huge impact on people's well-being at the, you know, cultural level. And I know for me too, as like someone with multiple chronic illnesses and an eating disorder history, the eating disorder was never in the picture until I started trying to seek out you know, a weight loss, right. Which I thought was necessary and B, uh, alternative health treatments for the new problems and symptoms that I developed as a result of the disordered eating and, you know, the disordered eating really sort of dovetailed and maybe triggered a number of chronic illnesses that I still live with today, 20 years later, you know? Um, and so I, it's just, it's been so interesting for me in my own lived experience to kind of recognize how harmful the pursuit of quote unquote health was and that letting go or sort of easing up on that pursuit and um, looking for approaches that sort of treated me as a whole person and that address my mental health has actually helped so much more and recognizing the privilege I have in that too and that I have access to healthcare, which not everyone does. And certainly not everyone in the U S does, um, and access to mental health care as well, which is prohibitively expensive for a lot of people. And like, just knowing that, you know, the care that I've been able to sort of cobble together and advocate for myself to get has been so much better than when I was kind of just, you know, taking the, um, standard advice of physicians and other health professionals that was very much that, you know, top down sort of teaching, like we, I tell you what to do and you go do it sort of thing, because that felt so very, um, just based on the physical, the material, not at all sort of addressing the, 
the larger um, issues that were going on for me in my relationship with food and my body and just my lack of coping skills in general, you know? Yeah, I think a lot of people would relate to that for sure. It's, um, you know, it's interesting that you speak to, um, you know, this, the pursuit of health um, for many people is actually more harmful than helpful. And the other thing that, um, that we haven't talked about is the pursuit of health, two things. One, as it's conflated with weight, shape and size. And two, um, as it's conflated with value and worth. So that we are led to believe that we are more valuable and worthy if we are pursuing body improvement or we're, pursue, we're pursuing nutritional improvement or, um, you know, health, health um, condition improvement, for example. And if we choose to do nothing, which, by the way, is still doing something, it is an autonomous choice, actually, that um, that is seen as almost amoral or, you know, as, um, as unacceptable. The choice, the choice to take care of myself in a way that is not um, uh, dominantly sp spoken about, in other words, if I choose not to do this to my body, that is absolutely part of people's choice. And I think we forget that part of it too is um, and lupus back I guess this comes back to discernment like how is this pursuit going for me like is it is it leading me further in the direction of what I particular I value and what feels really meaningful for me or am I um, like a hamster on a wheel am I feeling like I'm kind of getting nowhere and expending all this kind of time energy and money and you know the life thief as you refer to in anti-diet is this really heading me in the direction that I want to, or do I need to pause, slow down and get a sense of um, like, where am I? Get a sense of direction. Where am I? How helpful is this? Whatever this is. Um, do I, you know, would it be helpful for me to reimagine things or to seek, um, seek another um, not maybe not another experts or person's thoughts, but to to seek another avenue of some description. So I think the discernment of being able to uh, follow a path which feels meaningful for us, I think it's definitely been caught up in this virtuous, moralistic um, way of being, which I find really disturbing, to be honest. I do too, completely. And it's interesting, like my mind is going in so many directions right now because <laughs> you use the term like, you know, value and worth right earlier on, like that, uh, you know, our society views people who are quote unquote healthy or quote unquote pursuing health in the way that that's currently construed as having greater value and greater worth. But then also we're, we're talking about like, you know, values in terms of where do you want to go? Where do you want to be putting your energy and what's actually important to you in your life? And I think that in some ways, the value that our, you know, that society imposes on us to say that this type of person is the only type of person who is valuable sometimes stands in for our own values without us even realizing it, because that's just the received wisdom. That's just the culture that we live in, right? Is that we, we receive these ideas about what is valuable or what, what holds value. Mm. And it kind of supplants our own intrinsic sense of values and, 
you know, so I'm just, I would be so curious to talk with you a little bit about values because that really comes up in a, a lot of your work and it's one of the principles in your book. And I'm just, you know, I love the, the activities that you do in some of your workshops around helping people to sort of define their values. And it's just, it's so interesting how like conscious of a choice that has to be to sit down and reflect on our values and write them out or, you know, figure out what is really meaningful and important to us Mm -hmm. in this society that's always trying to impose its values on us. Right. Yes. Yes. So values are really interesting because I think being able to disentangle us from our dominant um, socializations and from um, who we think we should be and how we how we have been led to believe we should be showing up in the world to hold intrinsic value is something that it, that I think most most humans, particularly in more developed countries, uh, find challenging. So how do we separate out what feels truly intrinsically value driven to us versus what has been handed to us, you know, without our consent usually, um, what has been handed to us through um, our socialisations and through um, cultural attitudes and so forth. So the reason why I really love um, the topic of values is if it's set up well, that we are able to set aside some space where we have access more to our true wisdom and our true heart and what feels really resonant for us. So the um, literature around values is really interesting because when people identify their particular, if, if we were to just say the top three or top five values, the more they self-identify with behaving in alignment with those values seems to seems to correlate with life satisfaction, which is interesting. Now, this lies independent of things like race, culture, age, socioeconomic status as well. So I find that really interesting is that we don't necessarily, I mean, I, I, I have never read a study that has looked at um, stigmatization or, or racism or, um, you know, um, fat phobia or any of those things which significantly impact the way that we have been led to believe we deserve to show up in the world and, you know, how we can align with the values that we hold so dear. So if anybody has that uh, literature, I would be very, very interested. I haven't seen it. Um, doesn't mean it doesn't exist, of course, because hello, I don't own Google Scholar. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, values is a really interesting one because it can bring us back really to what energizes and connects us to each other and to the world. So I'll tell you a quick funny story. Very early on when I met our mutual friend, Marcy Evans, we were talking about values and how much we really enjoyed integrating values work into, um, you know, into, into our eating disorder recovery work and into our supervision work as well. And um, she said to me, she said to me, oh, what are, what are your top values? And I, I think I said something like, um, oh, this is so weird that I can't even kind of just, just rattle them off. But it would have been something like connectedness, um, adventure and fun, right? So I said fun and I was a little bit sheepish. And she said, oh my God, so is, like, so is mine. Like, fun is in my top three as well. And I don't think to that 
point I had ever met anybody who fun was in their top three. And so we were, you know, we were, you know, laughing and carrying on as, you know, we typically do anyway. Uh, But it was a really interesting moment because I felt so seen. I really felt uh, seen that lightheartedness and fun and um, discovery and um, laughter and for me, everything that kind of encompasses fun was, I felt so lovely for that to be witnessed. I felt like a permission for that to be um, something that was really important to me and something that I could really hold close and enact as often as I wished. And I found that a really interesting experience because I must say that even with somebody who I trust so implicitly, like Marcy, I felt a little bit sheepish around saying, oh, and fun. And she was like, oh my God, me too. And just that being witnessed was so powerful. And so I think the point that I'm trying to make here is it's not only being witnessed by somebody else, but being self-witnessed witnessing ourselves and saying hey that's really cool good for you that is a worthy value that is I mean not not that it's up to me to name whether something's worthy um and not that I would say that to anybody else necessarily but to say to say that to ourselves is to say and that value is important to you it's important for particular reasons and that's okay you don't have to keep looking to the side and comparing to anybody else or, you know, see if that's a quote unquote good enough value. I mean, God, the number of times, Christy, that I've had um, conversations with people saying, oh, I don't know what I should choose or I don't know what's the right thing to choose. And I'm like, I mean, not that I would say this to an individual, but I'm like, here we go. It's diet culture in action. Like that, that sense of what, what should I be choosing that makes me a good enough person is fun good enough well i'm here to tell you it is i have decided that fun is good enough (laughs) (laughs) i so agree i it's funny when you uh you wrote about that in the book too about like crossing off you know the things trying to get from your top 10 to your top three which is like an activity that just stumps me every time like and I've done it multiple times and I think come up with a different top three different times because you know it changes by the day maybe or so I don't know but also I think part of it is that sense of is this okay is it okay that I put these things in my top because you know a top 10 list of values I feel like is not easy but I think is more uh forthcoming you know for a lot of people I think for me it was relatively painless to get to like, okay, these are my top 10. I feel pretty good about this, but to go from top 10 to top three, like what are my real guiding lights? It's like, Ooh, that just feels so there's so much sort of comparison and moralization that can happen. And, you know, like you said, in the book, you crossed off family and you know, like to make room. What does that mean about me? (laughs) Right. I know. And I've, I've felt the same way too, where it's like family does not make my top three and, you know, various times that I put it, but also to me, like, you know, one of my top three consistently has been curiosity, which I know is one of your principles in the book too. And, um, and I feel like that, you know, encompasses other things, right. To me, like a sense of curiosity and exploration 
permeates all of my close relationships and is like a, a foundational thing that I share with my family and my chosen family, you know, and that, um, like, I feel like that it, it's there, like those important relationships are there, even if the term, you know, the overarching term of family isn't in the top three, right. That like how I show up in my close relationships and the people that I choose or that I have formed those close bonds with, like we do share these, some of these core values. Yeah, I think you raise a really important point there. And I often encourage people, rather than thinking about it as people, is to think about qualities. Like what is the, the what is the the spirit or the energy or the quality that you want to be bringing to your relationships, to the world, to your community. Um, because, yeah, when people literally see themselves crossing family off the list, that can be really confronting. And, of course, you know, we're able to, um, you know, calm that down a little bit by saying, you know, it doesn't matter that they, it, it doesn't mean they don't matter. Um, it, it's just that let's think about the quality. So, for me, connectedness reminds me about all my relationships, including family. So I sometimes think that the setup of that activity is really important and, and to allow people to explore um, with freedom a lot of these qualities but not get kind of bogged down in, uh, you know, in, in, into, you know, these, these narrow precipices that we can find ourselves in around, oh, is that good? Is that bad? What does this mean about me? And there's so much like received wisdom around that too, kind of going back to the whole idea of like the social, you know, imposition of values or ideas about what's worthy and what's right. Like, you know, it, the, nothing is right or wrong. It's just, we, we want to get to know ourselves and know what drives us and know what values really are our guiding lights. And I don't think, you know, having there, certainly there's maybe cultural differences around, you know, are you supposed to have family as like your number one, right? And what right. does it, you know, right. quote unquote, say about you if you don't, it's, there's more to unpack maybe if you're socialized to expect that that's going to be such a yes. primary value. And like, you still deserve to have whatever values you hold, you know, and that's, I think, yeah, it's just, it's just so hard to shed that sort of comparison and that feeling of like, am I okay? Is somebody going to check this? Like somebody going to see this paper that I'm writing on at this conference and, you know, judge me over my shoulder. Whatever. And you raise a really good point around, you know, I was noticing as you were speaking that there are so many parallels there with diet culture recovery or eating disorder recovery that, you know, am I doing this right? Am I doing this good enough? Um, and then all the other um, attributes that we're maybe building through that process, like um, self-compassion and mindfulness, for example, like, am I doing this correctly? Am I doing it good enough? And what that really speaks to is, um, is really how we can hold ourselves steady when, um, you know, when there are so many uh, pressures that we're not necessarily, if, I mean, unless we reach enlightenment, which, I mean, not in my lifetime, that's not going to happen, but, um, you know, or not that that's where I'm aiming for, but, you know, that we, we do have to live in a world where, um, where there is inequity and grief and loss and so much full-on stuff, um, but how can we hold ourselves steady alongside this sense of um, I, I I'm 
I know it sounds really kind of a little bit trite to bring it back down to this, but I am doing what I can. I am, I'm good enough just as I am in this moment. Um, however I show up and whatever efforts I am able to make towards myself and towards others, that it's all okay. Um, and to just really honour our capacity at any one point in time. We're not always going to be aligned with our values at all. We're not always going to enjoy, you know, a peak life satisfaction. Um, but that, you know, feeling, you know, witnessing ourselves, witnessing our own experiences with, with reverence and, and, um, and compassion can kind of just really lay that groundwork for the long for the long game because like you and I speak about all the time Christy if we're going to smash this stuff if we're going to smash diet culture it really is a long game like it's it it's not this is not going to be done um you know in in the short you know in in weeks and months and even years this is a long game so it's it's a chipping away and and to be able to chip away um you know if we were to use the word successfully um what we're really needing to do is to stay really steady in um in our own wise selves and to encourage and support others to do the same so that we can do this together because <laughs> it's not going to be done by one person that's for sure that is for sure and yeah like you said we might not see the change in our lifetime but you know the change is coming and we can be a part of it mm-hmm. but yeah it's it's a it's a long process and requires so much self-compassion to be, to go through. And I think that's, you know, going back to sort of the, um, uh, you know, misapplication or misconstrual of ideas like self-compassion and mindfulness and uh, gratitude. It's like, you know, we need to have compassion for ourselves, even when we're not living in line with our values, right? Even when we're pulled away, because we will be pulled away again and again. And I love in the chapter on mindfulness, how you talk about you know, people wanting to quote unquote, do it right with mindfulness too, and trying to meditate and then being like, oh God, I'm getting distracted. That means I'm not doing it right. And you're a point of, you know, reassuring people like, yeah, that's, that's the practice, right? That's, that's it. <laughs> that is actual practice. We're going to get distracted. We're going to get pulled away and noticing that and maybe being able to gently bring ourselves back to that when we have the capacity or not, you know, sometimes I'll spend 20 minutes in meditation, just like, you know, thinking about a work problem or something, yes. right? and the timer goes off and I'm like, Oh, well, okay. That that's what that was, you know? And, right. Oh dear. Yes. Yeah. Cause I don't relate to that at all, Christy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh yes yeah (laughs) I mean right nobody is perfect we're not we're not some paragons of this oh my god those of us teaching it have our messy lives as well oh god yeah yeah and hopefully you know in both anti-diet and um redefining wellness or redefining well-being whatever you end up calling it and also vitamin a to z i really hope that this really shines through you know that that you and i are really no bullshit people who really aim to to show up and say look we're not perfect we have we both have a lot of privilege and also we're we're just trying to do our best same as everybody else we're just trying to show up and and do our best and and um you know, be in community with other people who are also, you know, making those same um, efforts or, you know, trying to um, shift this giant 
shit show that we call dire culture. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, Christy, thank you so, you so, so much. much. Was, there, was there anything else that you wanted to kind of ask or talk about or...? Uh, I could talk with you forever and I feel like there's a million topics that I had on my list that we sort of, you know, have circled around and, and done the, um, you know, the, the touch in and go looping back. Right. So Mm -hmm. I I love how looping this conversation has been. Mm -hmm. Um, I just want to like, I guess the last thing that sort of struck me in this book and that maybe would be a good note to end on actually would be, um, thinking about, you know, how the skills of, you know, this book, like, I think it does a really good job of giving a bunch of tools and skills or principles um, and practices to work on that both help people in healing their relationships with food. And you make those connections very clearly, but also like are helpful in all other aspects of life. Right. And, and at sort of creating this sense of truly holistic well-being, not holistic in the, you know, quote unquote sense that, the wellness diet mm. loves to make us believe, but truly holistic where it attends to all of our facets as human mm. beings and, you know, the best way possible given the tools we have at the time. Mm. And yeah, so I'd just love to, you know, hear your thoughts if you have any on, on kind of how healing our relationships with food and our bodies can broaden out into, you know, healing our well-being or our mental health in general. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I see, you know, one of the things that I love and appreciate most about being a dietitian, because in some ways, you know, there's a part of me that's like, should I go back and retrain as a therapist? And that thought lasts about five seconds before I think about the debt that I would accrue doing that and what the time and effort that it would take. And I think to myself, you know, one of the greatest gifts of being a dietitian is the way that um, our our challenges are expressed or, or what we are tasked with as humans is so can be so expressed through our relationships with food and eating. Um, and that, you know, when we, uh, when we find ourselves um, getting entangled in, uh, for example, dichotomous thinking, or we feel constantly not good enough with, for example, our eating practices or, or within our bodies, that what an interesting an interesting exploration it is to uh, to consider how this shows up for us in other areas of life of life, and so being able to see ourselves um, and to see food as almost like a compass point, I think, is really, really, really interesting, um, especially within a culture which has very, very specific ideas around food and eating and body shapes and sizes um, that we, we kind of, we feel this maybe this faux, um, this um, faux as in F-A-U-X, this faux sense of um, achievement when we make dietary changes or when our body changes um, because our actual source of dissatisfaction lies in a completely different space. So we almost like, trick ourselves in a way that the improvement that I'm making to my nutrition or to my exercise or to my um, physical being is then automatically translated into other areas of life. And for a vast majority of people, this doesn't hold true, especially not, uh, not long-term, um, but that, you know, how interesting it is that we find this language, the language of, you know, food and eating and body relationships 
that can allow us just such an interesting scope into our inner worlds and what it is that we need. Like, what is it that provides my life with satisfaction and nourishment and um, fullness? You know, all these words are words that we use with eating, right? Satisfaction, fullness, nourishment. So if we were to broaden that out and think about what this means in terms of, um, you know, a, a more full life or a more nourished existence or more satisfied work life or relationships or whatever it is, like it takes on a whole different um, way of understanding ourselves, which I think is really precious, to be honest. I think it's, I think it's incredible. That is so beautiful. That is, ah. Uh. I love, I love everything you shared there and just in the book as well. I feel like it's, it, it's such fodder for conversation. I think it's going to really spark a lot of uh, conversations between people and also within people, you know, people mm-hmm. kind of thinking through these ideas with themselves. And uh, I'm really, really grateful. I got to interview you about the book and that it's out there in the world. Oh, Christy, I'm so grateful to you. Thank you so much for joining me. You are so experienced with, you know, interviewing people and you have given your time and energy so generously. So really appreciate your support. And, and thank you everybody to, um, to who's listening. Thanks for your support too. And thanks for listening to us chitty chat. It's basically, this is how Christy and I talk all the time with each other we walk around parks and well when we're in person when we're lucky enough to be in person and we have dinners and zoom meetings and all kinds of things so this is actually you know a, well maybe a little bit more formal than we usually talk and and a little less sweary might i say oh my god <laughs> a lot true. less sweary um I'm kind of amazed that we got through this without swearing I think I we know. Did. I mean, what the fuck, right? <laughs> right. Gotcha. Just fucking blow it up right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we're bringing it. This is good. This is this feels a lot better. <laughs> and the snort laugh. We get the snort laugh too. Yes, the snort laugh. The Christy Harrison snort laugh. I love it. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, my friend. Uh, so appreciative of you. And um, yeah, thank you again. Wow, amazing. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.